Hey, yo, this is Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. This is Mark Linsenmeyer. To learn more about this podcast, please go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Episode 16 is a ball of fun because we are joined by Narada Michael Walden, master drummer, master producer, master songwriter. He's put out many solo albums, but also made major contributions to many, many albums that you have heard of, including this one, Aretha Franklin's Freeway of Love, which we will talk briefly about during the episode. His 2015 album is called Evolution, and we're going to talk about the song Freedom from that, which is actually a Richie Havens cover. But at the end of the episode, you'll also get to hear Billionaire on Soul Street, which is original, which is the first single from the album. We're also going to dip back to his disco period. The song is I Shoulda Loved Ya, a big hit from his 1979 album The Dance of Life. And then back to his first album, Garden of Love Light, from the album of that name from 1976. We'll also talk a little about his early days, playing with John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra, with Carlos Santana, with Jeff Beck. For more information on him, please check out naradamichaelwalden.com. I started doing the band thing when I was in Ann Arbor in college, so in the neck of the woods. We got to go into Detroit a few times. What year were you there? 89 through 93. Nice, okay. You had already moved west by then, right? Sure. But Ann Arbor is very dear to my heart because in 67, I heard floating out of a record shop. I was there on, to do a conference at, at the school there on acting. I got an acting scholarship. And I heard the music of Laura Nero floating out for the first time on Stone Soul Picnic. And then the album Eli and 13th Confession. And that album has changed my life in Ann Arbor. Okay, so it sounds like you likewise, it's not like music was the thing and then you're doing med school or something. You're doing acting as your other, another yeah. passionate artistic thing. Yeah. What happened with that? Did you just... Oh, I loved it. I did an experiment where I acted the whole thing, and it was only like one light bulb on the stage, and they would light me with one light bulb, making it stronger or very dim. That kind of thing. Drama. Okay. Yeah. So you, have you gotten to revisit that at all? Have you done little cameos in anything besides your videos? I was watching one from the from the 80s with the making eyes at the girl in the convertible, and her big boyfriend coming and whoops you like that whole... No, he tried to whoop me. He tried. Let's get it straight, man. <laughs> he tried to whoop me, all right? <laughs> the power of the funk was too was too much. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what do you play? What instrument? Bass is my main thing. I've always done like classical guitar. I mean, as a rhythm player, more like a punk rhythm player, just kind of banging on it. I'm more a singer that dabbles in a lot of instruments. I've played drums for pleasure more than any other instrument at this point. It's just, it's not something I'm really great at, but it's so energizing. That's what it is. That's what it is. And, and you know, it keeps you young. Like I'm 105 years old. Can you believe? <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, oh, I can't. Man, I can't. Well, let's talk about this burst of creativity you've been having recently that I know, you know, just looking at your solo albums, I know you were producing at a constant rate, but that you had this steady stream from the mid to late 70s through into the 90s. And then there's a dead period. At least I don't see any releases with your name as a solo artist on them for a few years. And then suddenly we've got Thunder, we've got your... EP of redoing your fusion stuff. We've got this uh, new Evolution album. We have the Narada Band album also on the same year. The Narada Band album. Now, that was that would be a little earlier. Okay, it's just listed on Spotify as 2015. That was the first incarnation of getting back around to us. And then I came with my thunders and then this Rising Sun and now the Evolution. Well, let's get into the Evolution first. So that's the thing you're pushing right now, right? Yeah, man, I am. Thank you. And I'm very happy that you take notice of me, too. I think what you're doing is really a cool thing. Are you there like in your basement? <laughs> yes, this is the basement. <laughs> I like it. 
See, that's what I'm saying. This is what we need, man. You know, the real passion for the love of the music and how we make it and get it out in the world. I like all this. Well, let's drill into, so the track that I had picked, I don't know if you actually got the list. No, I don't have a list. Generally, I try to, in fact, get the artist to pick in advance. Just listening to the whole Evolution album, I picked out Freedom, one of your more dynamic vocal parts. And then as an example of sort of your classic singles period, I Should Have Loved You, which I've you know heard your song. I Should Have Loved Ya. Yeah, okay. I Should Have Loved Ya. Thank you. It's the technical. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you want to be all detailed. (laughs) You're right, man. And then to get into something with a little 70s jazz inflection to it, the title track, Garden of Love Light. Oh, okay. um, so those are the three. So it's all good. It's all, all, good. It's all, right. all good. All right. Well, let's get started. So talk a little bit about the setting for this. So Evolution, when I was listening to the tune Freedom, it even sounded like, I know you play a lot of instruments yourself, right? You play the drums, you play the keyboards, you do the programming on things you produce. But then I've also seen you credited with guitar and even bass, some of the point. So I was thinking when I was listening to this Freedom song that this was probably just you at least playing 90% of it, maybe everything except the guitar solo. But I see that from something I just found online five minutes before we started that, no, 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 it sounds like you had a steady band for this whole last album. Was this kind of... That's correct. Yeah, okay. no, Freedom was actually a live track in the studio. I'm only on the drums. Okay. Matthew Charles Hewlett on the guitar. And then the halfway through when the band comes in, that's Frank Martin on Oregon keyboards and on bass is Angeline Saris. So yeah, well, that's actually a kind of a live track. Okay. And this is part of your skill in producing that it's just super tasteful that just to have somebody going for that long doing that rhythm guitar part and kind of sticking to that little pocket there, you know, and there are some little variations that make it interesting as you go through it. But I mean, it's a pretty slow build song that you've got, you know, three minutes of just this groove with these verses before the big freak out comes where the bass finally comes in. So Yeah. Well, you know, are you hip to Richie Havens? Oh, yeah. Well, Richie didn't play with a bass that much live. He was really like a kunga and guitar, you know. It was really him carrying everything with maybe a kunga player. So in homage to Richie Havens, I didn't want to have a bass or anything make it sound like it wasn't a Richie Havens spirit. So I wanted the guitar, maybe a kunga. And in fact, on that record, it might be James Henry playing some kunga. I play hi-hat most of the first half, just to kind of get that feeling of bass drum hi-hat and vocal with the guitar, man. I wanted Richie Haven's spirit, which is genius. That guy is genius. And you know what else? That song he wrote on the spot at Woodstock as the sixth encore. He had to kill some time because, you know, the bands weren't organized who's coming on next, whatever. So he took six encores and he kind of just made it up. Like, you know, part from a thing he might have known as a childhood kind of gospel thing, but just kind of made it up what he wanted the people to hear. So I'm really enamored by that whole spirit. And I love that guy. So I thought I want to, I want to do, do something for him. And it fits my band perfectly. So that's what it is.
I guess this is not an exercise in your songwriting. This is an exercise in your producing, you know, because all of your, your hallmarks in terms of, I'm just amazed. We'll talk about this when we get to I Should Have Loved You. I don't know why I should be amazed, but the fact that you can make a groove work so that it could just go on. This could be a 20-minute song, and I would still enjoy it. <laughs> this is- and, and that's the point. That's what Richie Havens did all the time. <laughs> he would play the guitar for like five, ten minutes before he even started singing the song. Just get the groove right. That was his thing. So that's why I purposely did that. Made it feel like that. So it's like a slow build, man. That's very much Richie Haven's spirit. And I think that was why I was attracted to this because that's what I was just talking about in terms of banging on the classical guitar. That's exactly what I mean is I can't do crazy flying leads, but like I like those, I would say disco rhythms, but, but in terms of what rhythms, baby, (laughs) give me those disco rhythms. The groove itself that you're playing at the beginning of the song, that's not from the Richie Havens version, right? He no, was just no, playing Richie, that by himself. He didn't have any, any uh, like, drum kit. He would have just kungas. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Play like, acoustic, acoustic guitar. Like that. And keep building. It just go like for a long time. So that's what I'm trying to get that feeling. And for me... And making it contemporary now, which I'm always aware of making things, you know, current. I put a little bass drum on the floor, you know. Yeah. On the floor, you know, gonna, gonna get it going. And a little hi hat, you know. To make it feel kind of good. And then let it, let it, let it simmer like that. So that was all very intentional. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cause you establish the groove before the guitar even comes in for, you know, it's 16 measures or something. It's a nice, good chunk there. Now, singing these kind of lyrics involving these traditional elements, it seems like the kind of lyrics that you often go to in a funk tune, in a disco tune, have the same resonance that these old spiritual, (laughs) I don't know why, this is religious stuff, and saying, baby, baby, I love you, that kind of thing. That's what I'm telling you. If you knew Richie Haven's style, he was a rhythmatic genius cat. So what he did back then is very much now. See? I'm a strong believer in whatever is rhythm and funk is always current. And that's why people who are not funky fade away. And things that are funky like incense, peppermint, boom, 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 will always be hot because it has that kind of groove about it. Even, even my green tambourine, even like white pop stuff, but at least it has some funk in it will always be like on the radio. That funk saves the day every time. Rich <laughs> Havens was the funk master. So that's why in imitating him, I'm still current. Like the same if I imitate Ray Charles, I'm still current. If I imitate an old Rita Franklin record, I'm still current. Anybody who had that funk down that understand the phrasings, you're always current. So the instruments were all played live and then you added your vocals later, I assume, or? Yeah, but see, but hang on. Or did you have a guide vocal kind of as yeah, you were Okay. Well, see, I, we rehearsed it with me singing it. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, like, like straight through, like, like what the record is. Sure. Then we actually cut it without me singing it, but me having it in my, in my brain. Cause see, if I sang it on the drum kit, yeah. it would all bleed in my drums and I wouldn't be having any, any chance to like edit. So we would just uh, sing it through. So I had that understanding of how I want the song to go. Then I just cut it with it, me singing it in my, in my brain the next take. And that's what basically what it is. Okay. I know you like to work quickly. <laughs> how, how much rehearsal did this song? I mean, was it really just the band? going through it once or twice and then you recorded it? That's it. Exactly that. Oh, all right. You know, I've come to a spot in my life where it's like coming full circle. You know, I really want the live spontaneity because that's where the magic lives. I mean, you can always prefabricate things and fix things, 
but you want as much as the spirit to come as you can. Mm-hmm. So you pray on it and you ask God to come in the room and you ask God to kind of bless everybody and then you go at it. So you're saying that's how you were doing your first bands and then more in the 80s, 90s when you were going production heavy, when you were playing that role a little more, then things were a little more, well, it's, you were doing more of the programming, right? If you were playing in uh, Freeway of Love or something, I know at some point you switched to a lot of synth bass as opposed to live bass for at least some. Now, was that just because that was easier for you to play and you were just putting everything together? <laughs> no, 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 no. no but, okay. Because like, there's, there's a lot of music. Like you mentioned Freeway of Love. Let's just focus for a second. Sure. So that I, I can give you a good answer. See, uh, on a Freeway, it's a song that was written for my album a long time ago. And then Preston Glass says, why don't you cut that song for Read the Frame? I go, whoa. Hey, he not told me that. I wouldn't even thought of that. So, okay, then in cutting it, I make a Motown feeling because I want the Detroit feeling where, where we the lips, even though she wasn't signed to Motown, but I want that spirit of Motown. And on bass is a cat named Randy Jackson, who's a bass player. You know the American Idol judge. Yeah, 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 of course. But on that record, he plays Mo bass with one finger. So I like the sound he gets on the Mo because that made it sound contemporary. Uh, okay. So he's emulating what I play in my left hand on the piano. When I write a song, my left hand is always playing the bass part. My right hand is playing what I want the, the, the rest of the band to be, to be jamming. Gotcha. So that's how we kind of tear it apart and put it back together again. But I'm really aware on those type of records what I want and how I want it to be. But it still is a jam feeling. It's all cut live. Well, let's jump all the way back to Garden of Love Light to get that on the okay. table here. So, you know, I know you were in bands before this. You were in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. There are uh, compositions that you have on that. And so at the same time you were doing this album, you were doing the Jeff Beck album. Was that right before or was it right during this? Garden of Love Light? No, uh, just before. Okay. Because in 75, it was like a cataclysmic hit that happened all of a sudden of a lot of recordings that were just like, from my vision orchestra, it was like the second album I'm on is called Visions of the Emerald Beyond. Uh-huh. And, and Inner Worlds. And then, of course, Wire was cut around that same time, too, after Inner Worlds, which means 75, going in 76, 75, somewhere in there. And then we also did Black Market, Weather Report, around that time, too. Right. A lot of stuff was hitting. I'm telling you, it was like, it was like explosions at that time for some reason. The popular rock cats, progressive rock cats like Mavishnu, Jeff Beck, Joe Zawinul, they all got interested in the funk. I mean, I mean, the funk has always been around, but they all kind of took a turn for like doing whatever they did, but they wanted that funk up in it. So, which I kind of made it a little bit more accessible in a way. So that kind of happened, I think, around the same time in 75. Yeah, that certainly was due around that time. It seems like when people think back at, of progressive bands at this point, at least in the circles that I, it's white British guys. It's Yes, it's King Crimson, it's Genesis. And those guys either went around that time started to get less popular or started to do other things or that wave that I think, you know, started with just the 60s psychedelic anything goes and admitting more complex symphonic kind of structures in like that that could actually get on the radio, that that could be a... Yeah, but let's know. check it out. The thing you just said, I, I got to stop because I, I, I want to yeah, interject. Please. Like, yes, they got funky with, with that cat on drums, Bill Buford. Okay, I see what I see where you're coming from with that, and that's right. That's right in the in the heart of you know 1972, which was kind of the prog year. It had that funk on it. That's how Buford understood that. Chris Squire understood that. John Anderson understood that. Even look at a band like King Crimson. There's a piece of that I don't know what it's called. Where they have a it's mind blowing. The drummer takes a long solo over the over the thing goes round and round and round like ba ba da, 
Like in the, in the court of the king. Oh, the okay. Really king. early on, yeah. From that time, there's a piece where they're going to have a vamp. And this vamp, brother, in all the hoods, the black people loved it. I'm telling you, it had the punk in it. Every band you just named had elements of punk in it. That's how they were bad. That's how we knew them. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know them. Or, or even dig it that much. Well, let's turn to Garden of Love Light. So this is your first full-on solo album, 1976, is when it comes out. It seems after this, you produced everything you did, right? But this was Tom Dowd. Tommy Dowd, the great Tom Dowd, helped produce, co-produce my record. Oh, okay. Really All right. together because, you know, I wanted his input to say how to do things in a genius way. I was brand new to really learn these things on my own first solo album. The first time I recorded was really with George Martin and Mavish Orchestra, John McLaughlin. Yeah. And watching George Martin, Sir George Martin, was a mind-blowing experience. So much so that when it came time for my own album, I really needed to have someone really guide me to make a great album. I can learn from. And Atlantic was so rich, they said, well, you have a choice. You can use Tommy Dowd or Reef Mardine. Whoa. But because I was going more rock at that time, mm-hmm. I decided to pick Tom Dowd. Because he had the Almond Brothers, some cream stuff. And of course, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin. But you understood that rock side. And my album at that time was going to be cataclysmic in the rock, funk, soul department. And I wanted a massive Cadillac door slamming sound. So on, for example, the opening track, White Knight, that's what, that's what we accomplished. Sure. And sure. Garden Love Light, Tommy Dowd's contribution is saying, you know what, this ending, these background vocals you got going on, that's, you mean, we need to get Susie Houston in here. So, okay. It was Tommy Dowd that would say those kind of things. So in would come Susie Houston with her girls and little Whitney Houston sitting in the corner watching. She's 11 years old, looking beautiful. And I knew she'd be something because she was just, she had that magic halo on her head.
Now, was this the recent band without the horns, at least the rhythm section, worked up as a live thing? Mm-hmm. I had Willie on bass, David Sanchez on keyboards, the genius Ray Gomez on guitar. That was my core band to play the stuff. And then your piano and stuff would just be overdubbed later. Well, yeah. yeah I don't think I even overdubbed no piano. Maybe I did. I don't know. There's definitely piano part, and you're credited as piano, so I assume that. And you're right, then you're right. <laughs> basically, what Will Lee's doing is taking my left hand. They're playing what I'm playing and then tearing it up. So what intrigued me about this song, why it seemed that it had the special 70s, it's not you know full-on instrumental fusion like some of the other tracks on here and the other things you were doing at the time, but that it's got, before we actually get to the groove part, which is, over half the song that you've got this very kind of Stevie Wonder esque initial verses with a little bit of odd time signatures or at least a, an odd number of measures. Yes. Hello, my friends. How do you do? Seems like you're traveling through. And then, whereas you might expect the whole, my friends, how do you do is two measures long. You think sort of the, that's the call. You'd think the response would also be two measures through, but it's no, it seems like you're traveling through and then you move right on. Mm-hmm. And the second half of the verse is the same thing. And then the chorus, you know, similarly does something where you've got a, like a, an eight beat line and then to the garden love light. That's like six beats. That's not a style that you stuck with in terms of having these odd time signatures in the vocal lines. Is that just because this was, this a drum driven tune in the first place? No, I wrote on piano. Okay. It was homage dedication to my guru. The garden love light may have been um, a title of one of his poems. I was reading so much of his poetry at that time. And then I was just like, hello, my friends, how do you do? It's like we're traveling through. I met a man the other day. He's got a message for you. That was for my guru. So this is Sri Shinmoy. Love is going to take us there to the garden love light. Joy is going to take us there to the garden love light. I don't remember those on the second verse off the top, man. I wish I could. Uh, I was so happy just to hear his, yeah, his words so sweet and pure. Happy just to hear his words so sweet and pure. Uh, we've, got, we've got all we pioneers stop being insecure now. Yep. And he said, uh, love is going to take us there to the garden love light. Joy's going to take us into the garden of life. And if your mind is having a rainy day, let your soul blow the clouds away. And if you listen to what I have to say, you won't be lonely any longer. Come into my father's garden. I was watching a live clip of you from, well, a few years after this, but those are very busy drum parts, like during that, during that bridge. Were you playing it when you were doing this live? Were you playing just as much while doing singing? Always. Okay. I rehearsed it that way, cut it that way, and I always try to play live when I play on record. All right. I mean, I guess some of it is a matter of call and response. And if you listen to what I have to say, and then like the giant tom roll, you know, starting there, it's not running over the vocals too much. Right. That's right. I admire the drummer singers. I admire Karen Carpenter. I admire Buddy Miles. I admire Phil Collins. I admire Don Henley. I admire, there's so many people I'm forgetting right at the moment. The guy from Rare Earth who play and sing his butt off. Well, but, you know, like Phil Collins is an example that mm. when he switched to being the front guy, you know, they got Chester Thompson to sit in the back and hold things down that he never tried like you did to like do the full on prog thing on drums while still singing James Brown quality <laughs> lead vocals like you're doing. It's pretty damn incredible. I, you know, I think I remember Phil saying he thought it was boring. I remember him reading one of his interviews where he said he thought it was boring to be trying to carry a show from the, from the drum set. And I kind of felt like, yeah, I can kind of see what you see what you mean because we're stationary. You know, we're not moving around the stage. We're not like Mick Jagger where we can go over here and go over there. But from my side, I can give more that way. I can play it and get the whole room high because when I'm playing and then I want to sing because I feel good. I want to shout. I want to get tender. I want to get loud. So that's what it is for me. I mean, I don't mind to come up front and do that and do that and do some stuff, 
but I really enjoy doing both at the same time. Sure. It, just, it takes a lot of cardio, though. Like right now, I'm preparing to <laughs> go to New York. I want you to come to the Iridium shows, May 26, 27, 28, where I'll be playing Garden Level. I'll be playing a lot of my music. And it's, it's hard on my heart because of the cardio. But beyond that, the joy, the high, the evolution I get is just something out of this world. So can you say something about the change in your style towards chords over time? I mean, you, you don't seem, at least I'm not hearing a lot that's in your more recent writing that resembles what you did in the verses in the bridge here with your kind of jumping between keys and. Well, that was a time in our histories when we could do that. I mean, Stevie was popular with being jazzy and having hits. Mm -hmm. It was essentially my life. Jazzy and a very big hit. That was a time in our musicality, in our growth as artists, that we could be more free. And you have to understand me coming out of Mavishnu, which was, was very free. Weatherport, Jeff Beck, all things I was doing at that time allowed me a, a place where I could kind of marry the worlds of the free fusion with pop soul. So that, that's what that is. It was the time in life where I could really do that. As a producer later on, I, you know, even now, I'm more inspired by the simplicity of things. But at that time, we could really get away with really just doing a lot of experimentation, let's call it. Although I notice there still seems to be a divide. I mean, this this album is all over the place in terms of, you know, that you've got what it's the sun is dancing is the 10 minute. Yeah, the 10 minute fusion track. What seemed at least unique among the things I was hearing in, in your catalog on this tune is that it combines those at least a little bit. That it seems like either you're in the Mahavishnu mindset or you're in the pop song mindset that it's not like that. One of the things that is to me characteristic of Prague, of Yes and King Crimson, at least, are those guys. Is that they'll do the long instrumental freakout, and then within the same song, it'll slim down to now vocals come in and sort of deliver the verse, and then and the instruments, then the symphonic part of that, you know, makes it worth being ten minutes long. But it's still like a song, like anything that John Anderson has touched. It's because. I mean, he's just a guy that writes with his voice and then gets a lot of musicians around him to do crazy stuff. That didn't seem to be a model that spoke to you as much, right? You're either fusion or you're... No, no, see, I, I kind of disagree. To no. me, I love light. It opens up hugely after the, after Sissy Houston sings, take me, take me, take me, sure, take sure. me to the That's why, so this, but this is the only song that I can identify. <laughs> no? Blair's out and Ray Gomez is screaming. Yes, yes. That's my free. Then we come back to the funk game. Then we go out to the rock again. So... That's my expression. Yeah. It sounds like it's largely a change in the market that you don't do this kind of crazy chord progression stuff now. Or if you do it, it's more, I know you can do crazy jazz chords as long as you're in a, like an R&B ballad kind of setup that you can put, you know, ninth chords and like, you don't have simple chord progressions in general. Right. No, I mean, there are pieces on my records, for example, it's a piece called Miracle of Fatima on Thunder, even Thunder. You know, it's got, it's got some beautiful changes in there. On my album, uh, Evolution, I don't know what I, what I could point to because I don't have it here in front of me, but I don't know. I don't want to say about that. I just, I just do the music that comes to my heart. Sure. No, no, that's, and I guess that was a lot of times when I talk to people who were at some point enamored of, of progressive music at some point, it, it usually it happens earlier in their life because they're trying to figure, I want to say something original. I, this is totally different for somebody of my generation than somebody of your generation, because in your generation, that is what people were doing in 1976. Whereas when I was coming of age in 1990 or something, like there's no <laughs> pressure to get into Prague or something. But that still, you know, I see in my own songwriting that a lot of experimentation, it sort of follows people like follow the pattern of history that you had rock and roll invented, very simple 1950s, just kind of whatever's natural. And then it, it develops into this more and more complex thing until it, it gets to a point where, I don't know, it doesn't feel natural anymore or you feel like you got to turn around. And, and then sociologically, you know, we get back to straight funk or the punk thing 
just some kind of rebellion against this. And in pop music, as you're saying, like we've never really gotten back to that. I think now we're at a point where maybe there almost is no mainstream or if there is a mainstream, it's, there just seems to be a room, room to people can just go on the, the internet, get their own audience, whatever. So that there's bands that would have to be purely underground 15 years ago can make some space. I, I'm just interpreting this positively. I know a lot of people have negative things to say. Yeah, there's, you just can't sell records at all anymore. There's no, there's no, uh, market out there, but I interpreted this breakdown of culture as a freeing thing that now people can get back to if they want to do really complicated music, whatever. That's, that's cool. I know obviously there are exceptions. There are people like Alan Holdsworth or somebody that like that's their style and that's what feels natural to them. And they're going you know, to do that their entire career until they're 90 years old. I understand you. And like Mahavishnu, the genius. Yes. I mean, his writing is incredible. And where he gets that from is a whole other planet, a whole other world that blesses his heart, blesses his soul. And he'll always be that way where he just channels another world. And in my case, I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I love Motown music. I'm between Chicago, where I loved Curtis Mayfield's music, you know? And then, and then I learned as a young kid to love Horace Silver, Jimmy Smith, Julian Cannibal Adderley, you know, Dave Brubeck, Nina Simone, you know, it's all in me. So I can kind of like just tap on anything I really want to tap on when I want to. Mahavishnu, I learned how to play in five, seven, nine, eleven to play with him. I was raised doing, I learned that. Uh-huh. And I was very challenged and turned on by it. And I still enjoy doing it, but not just for the sake of doing it. I do because I, I feel it, you see. It's something I feel more than just challenged by anymore. So I assume even at that point when you were being drummer god, a lot of drummers I know, it's almost like they're athletes. But drummers who play other instruments and write are sort of a different breed than just drummers. Like, like Vin, right. Vinnie Caliuda, I know, you know, is if you listen to his solo albums, they're just, I haven't heard that many of them, but it's it's built around... In fact, I, I know this because a drummer in one of my bands before just worshipped Vinnie Caliuda, that it was trying to challenge himself technically and make his hands and feet work separately and do it. And like that was what it was about, whereas that seems only like this much of what music is for you. You're right. I love drumming, but I don't like it just to do things. Mm-hmm. I'm more about the song. I'm more about the way it makes me feel. And if the feeling of the song brings those things out, that's all good, too. But I mean, I'm inspired by Laura Nero. Like I told you, when I was 16 years old, I'm inspired by Joni Mitchell. I'm inspired by James Taylor. I'm inspired by songwriters, as well as Billy Cobham, as well as Jack DeJanet on uh, First Light with Freddie Hubbard. I like all good music, but basically, bottom line, I'm a song guy. Well, speaking of that, let's make the transition to the third song, I Should Have Loved Ya, from The Dance of Life, 1979, where you were having a huge burst of, I mean, two albums in that year. Was T.M. Stevens in the live band at the time? Oh, yes. Okay. The way I wrote, I Should Loved You, Ya was in the Oakland rehearsal hall. I told T, play a bass line, any bass line, and whenever I hit the bass, hit the cymbal, change. And we went through about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten changes before we stumbled upon the line of I should have loved you. And when he started hitting that, I said, stay there. And then we just kept rocking that. And then out came the chorus out of my brain on a microphone I used to have right here with a lot of echo on it. So it sounded really sweet to sing falsetto and high with all the echo. I should have uh-huh. loved you for his line. That's how it came down. But as I must tell you, just before that, I was threatened by Atlantic Records saying, if you don't have a hit on this new album, we're going to drop you. <laughs> and that's like the curse of death in my heart. I don't want to be dropped. I just got married, moved to San Francisco in 78, and I don't want to not have a label like Atlantic with me anymore. So they said, you want to be smart? Disco's where it's at, dance, music. And I just had a hit moving that way with the previous album, Awakening album, 
a song called I Don't Want Nobody Else to Dance With You with the Brecker Brothers and all that. And that opened the door for me. It saved my career. So now this next album, Dance Alive, I Should Love You, Tonight I'm All Right. All that music is, is in that same wave of saving my career, having commercial hits so that I can be on a label like Atlantic Records and make money. It's a business. I don't want to be playing on Fusion and be dropped. Even the Fusion people weren't really supporting Fusion anymore the same way. My Vision Orchestra was gone. Return Fair was gone. A lot of things was, that I love were gone. So you, we, we, a lot of musicians had to just disperse. And in my case, because I, I fell back on one of my strengths, songwriting and being, and being funky. And God blessed me with hits. So when I got the hit, I ran for it. I ran for hardcore, man. I was inspired by Rick James, you and I type of sound. Opening for Shaka Khan, opening for Patti LaBelle. I saw that at that audience. It's a different audience than Bobby's Orchestra. That audience wanted you to say, you know, how y'all feeling tonight? If I say yeah, say hell yeah. Then you can play all your smashes, right? At the ending of the show, because you, you won the respect, you can play The Sun is Dancing. And they go, oh. <laughs> so that's how you do it.
so was it, you knew you had the essence of a hit here, but was bringing in Allie Willis to help with lyrics, was that to polish it up mm-hmm. for a hit? <laughs> this, yeah. Or was it, okay, so it was, there's room for improvement in the, I, I mean, that takes a tremendous strength and confidence. Of course you could write your own verses. You've written your own verses for the last four albums, but that you're, for this song, you're going to bring in somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, Alan Willis had really made a big mark for herself with Earth and Fire stuff and with a lot of stuff she had done. And I just thought I was a fan. She's also from Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So that she would be open rides with me, I was very honored. And she wore, I should have loved you out. There you were, I was blinded. After love swore, I couldn't find it. A seduction grabbed my hand. My body screamed, but my heart just didn't understand. Life between the sheets is fine. If all you want to do... All you want to make is time. you want to make is time. Yeah. But if you want to make it last, you lose control if you drive too so, fast. Drive too fast. I should have loved you. That's what I'm talking about. That's, that's, Allie, that's Allie's genius. That's it right there. Okay? You can't, you can't beat that. And this is another one of those that I listened to the on YouTube. There's the 12-inch dance version. And it's got such a groove that it could just go on for, I don't know how long that version is, but it's a 12, it's 12 inches long. It's, I mean, actually on the record, it's six, six and a half minutes long. On Dance of Life, it's like six minutes something. Gotcha. But we were inspired by Chic. Chic had a formula where you do the entrance, the chorus, the verse, the second chorus, the second verse, the breakdown. And the breakdown would be like bass and drums. Yep. Yep. Bass, drums, and uh, one piano. Bass, drums, and then two pianos. Then finally now comes strutting hard with his rhythms. And you have maybe even one more time around. Then the out chorus. Then the ad lib. So we had a kind of a, at that time, because they had, you know, good times, which was a smash. We all trying to emulate a certain sound and know this is how you do it, man. That's what it was. So what I find especially effective about this song is just that unlike something like Tonight I'm Alright, which is just a straight ahead, happy, in the dance club kind of thing, but that there's something heartbreaking about this that's explicit in the lyrics, but it's really just there in that initial chord progression that you set up, that you've got the nice funky bass riff, which could be over any number of songs, but then you add that chord progression that, you know, in three simple chains, like, is just, it moves you. Well, that's Frank Martin on keyboards. That's Corrado Rustici on guitar. Those are brilliant musicians right there, brother. But that's what you wrote. And in fact, later in the song, you're doing the part during the breakdown, right? You come in doing that same thing on piano and then playing the horn part on your right hand. Yeah, they make it sound beautiful, man. You know, Frank's got a gift for that. You know, back at that time, he was using the prophet. That prophet had this kind of eerie sound about it. As soon as he played those, that sound, I said, oh my God, it just sounds kind of eerie. That's what, that's, that's what you're talking about. It's simple, yes. but it's eerie, you know? And the crowd with the funk, he's Italian. When he's playing the black funk, there's that mixture of the, the European black thing coming together. It's kind of this international spirit in there. Is this formula you were talking about, did that also apply? I mean, when at the beginning, after we've established the beat and you've come in with the chords and you've got the sax solo, it's a really blistering sax solo at the beginning. But when the sax comes back later, it's a little more mellow. It's a little more spread out. It's just like as the dance thing is going on, it's maybe reflecting. That's how I always feel like when I'm, if ever I'm playing something that is, you know, a long jam song that it kind of, if you're doing it for five minutes, you feel a little tight. It kind of just mellows out into something <laughs> that you're writing for it, as opposed to this blistering burst of energy that you got at the beginning. I mean, was that intentional? That, that yes. it seems like the vocals are a little quieter at the end. Maybe I'm imagining that. <laughs> well, no, no. It's just the blistering stacks in the entrance and then we play the, the hook. 
with space, you know, just the hook has a lot of room in it. Uh-huh. And then we change the changes, the change that to change for the verse, which I think you, know, you got to pick up on that. They're not, they're not the same chords as the chorus for the verse. So that's a little different and it makes it feel a little different. And the hand claps come out for the verse and it's meant to kind of come down like in the valley. So it can come back up again when the chorus comes back in again. So that's what it is. Yes. I mean, there's that, but I was even just more thinking with, after you've got the breakdown and you reintroduce gradually that you could, you know, yes. come in with that actual just straight up you playing the piano part and it repeats, I don't know, at least four or five times that you've got the basically like another chorus, another chorus, another chorus is the feel of how long it should go, where you should have a particular thing. This ha- happened also in the end of Garden of Love Life where you've got sort of the second solo section. You've got vocals at that point, but you've got little rip, just pretty much everybody's jamming somewhere in there. And there was one place, yeah, it was the bridge. If your mind is having a rainy day where I could hear there's really jammy guitar, but it's turned really low. Like as if you said, <laughs> like, okay, that was good, but it's a little distracting from the words. How do you, in a, in a band setting, thinking about these two songs in particular, kind of regulate who does what when? You know, who's, the keyboard is taking up too much space there. I mean, do you just let them do it and then take it out in the mix? Or do you, do you just have another run through? That's, that's all kind of worked out. And then there's, it's worked out. There's that you can noodle here. It's uh-huh. worked out. It's worked out. You, there's, there's room to take some, add some things here or just play these changes here. It's worked out. So you know how it's going to sound. Okay. You know? Yeah, and you just trust the instrumentalists to be tasteful enough and watch each other. And <laughs> on all of these records you mentioned, these are, these are some of the, the greatest musicians of, of our time. Raymond Gomez on guitar, Carlos Mistici on guitar, Frank and David Sanchez, Will Lee, T.M. Stevens. That's the best it gets. Now, there are things about, like, in the Garden of Love Light, when it goes into the guitar solo, the backing that you've got under this is this ascending riff that I guess the piano and the bass are running and the guitar solo at that point is also doing this ascending riff is, is yeah. you know playing this and then going out. Is that the kind of thing that you would suggest as a producer, as an arranger, as you're going through it, or that's just something that he would come up with? That could be Raymond Gomez. Cause we, we played the song a uh-huh. few times. We know it. So he understood what was happening. You know, we we're all trying to make that kind of feeling of something happening, going higher, higher, higher. Yeah. So that's probably something we spoke about, but, but he's genius at doing it anyway. You're also noticing his effect pedal comes in, which makes him like, like long repeating thing happening, very intentional. So it's perfect to kind of make this ascending thing happen. It's really Raymond Gomez's genius, and I would say the natural call of what the music is, is asking for. And then connecting this again back to the I Should Have Loved Ya, that little keyboard riff at the end, that do 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 like it's just so simple, it's just heartbreaking. It's <laughs> Yeah, bro, that's Frank. Okay, so that's just another, that's a riff he would come up with, or is that the kind of thing that you would sing at him? It's a, a long solo. And then, then he stumbled upon that, which is just great. Just great. That's something he just, that he brought to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I have to give credit to my, to my, all my cats, man. So that sounds like it's pretty typical of the way you produce that rather than, you know, here's a, a counter melody that you have in your head and you sing it at somebody, you kind of let them go. And then when they hit on something you like, then you emphasize that. And you make them do that more. Is that if the magic comes from them, that's genius. If it doesn't, I have to have an idea. So I have an idea. Okay. I saw in Garden of Love Light that you were credited for the horn arrangement on that one in particular, that you, you know, had that main riff, which just takes it to the, well, you're in the garden now. It's, it's the, the verses are all introducing things. And then it's unusual for a, a structure of a song that you've got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. And then we entered the jam section and that's what it is for the rest of the song. It's like, it's almost like two songs. You could have just made it two tracks and, uh, you know, that are connected. The next album, an album called I Cry, I Smile. The title track of that is the same thing. 
It's a beautiful song. And it has the jam session, which is a whole other song, another, you know, length of time. So that I, I like that formula. Yeah, I guess it's a little arbitrary whether you call it a different track. I mean, White Knight could just be, it's the introduction to the next song. Or is that White Knight is itself a, a self-contained? Absolutely. Well, that's probably just my prejudice toward vocal things that I always see the instrumental part as it must be. It's the prelude to the thing that comes. That <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That's cool. <laughs> you know, in my mind, White Knight was really a very forth, a very thought out piece of music that would knock people's socks off. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great intro to the record. Yeah. In particular, there was a guy, an A&R guy at Atlantic Records at the time named Jim Delahan. And I really wanted to knock Jim Delahan out of his chair. That was my intention. Yeah, well, I saw it made it to your your greatest hits album. Did you put that together? Or was that the record company picking what songs that were going to be on that? Probably was me and them too. But yeah, I, I had a hand in it for sure. Yeah, I, I told them the things I liked, and then they may have also added with things that they liked. But I did pick things I liked. Yeah. All right. So, well, let's just introduce the last song, "Billionaire on Soul Street." Give us an introduction. This was a one of the first things that we that we released as a single. And it was something composed, inspired by my girl here named Kimri, who you spoke to on the earlier, one of my assistants here. And she spoke to me in a way of saying, Billionaire on Soul Street, you know, it's a wonderful, I like, I said, I like how that sounds. That'd be a great name for a title of a song. And I said, it fits the way I feel right now with my new children in my life. I feel like a billionaire on Soul Street. So we actually sat down and kind of came up with a good song for it. And it's funky. It's got a lot of Curtis Maple in it, a lot of, you know, Chicago vibe in it. I, I'm actually singing like Curtis in my high kind of falsetto voice. And uh, it's pretty and funky at the same time. I like that combination. Like I should have loved you. It's got pretty and funk at the same time. Sure. Thanks, Marky. Appreciate hey. you, man. Bye-bye. Baby, just like an angel from heaven 
Bless me. Ah, Narada, Mr. Walden. Works so fast, so spirited that he can get done in a year more musical activity than I've done in a lifetime. In addition to that Aretha Franklin thing I played at the beginning, he had a major part in introducing Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. He's worked with Herbie Hancock, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, Jackson Brown, Jaco Pastoris, Ray Charles, Al Green, Al Jarreau, Steve Winwood, Elton John, Lou Rawls, Natalie Cole. The list goes on. Now, if you want to hear more from Narada, I recommend you check out the Soda Jerker on Songwriting podcast. An excellent podcast, slightly different format from this one. Those guys ask him a lot of questions about a lot of different hits he's authored over the years, people he's worked with. Now, I know being a rock guy... This R&B stuff was a little out of my comfort zone, although Narda was also a prog guy, which I do know something about. That was fun talking to him about that. I would like to get further out of my comfort zone. Uh, I don't think Stevie Wonder is going to answer my emails, so if listeners are familiar with other non-rock artists of note, please email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Hey, if you enjoyed this, I would appreciate if you would go to the iTunes store, look up Nakedly Examined Music, give me a nice rating or review. All right, hope you enjoyed Narada as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Again, naradamichaelwalden.com for him. If you want to hear my music, go to marklint.com. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. <laughs>